If you join me in Bible study today, take out a piece of note paper. Note paper. Yeah. I promise that today's Bible study would be a little different from the, what we normally do year in and year out on the Feast of Weeks. Because how many of you looked at your biblical calendar, your Hebrew calendar, and said, wait a minute, the Feast of Weeks was Thursday. So why in the world are we celebrating today? I don't see any hands out there, but I sure got a lot of texts and emails, as I do every year. So this year I promise to go into it in more detail on what and why. So take your piece of note paper and draw on it a long line. A line that would cover three months in time. <coughs> However long that is for you, okay? Then divide your line into three parts. It doesn't have to be exact. It's just a representation. Okay, that first block of the three is the month of Nisan or Aviv. Take your pick. Aviv is Hebrew, Nisan is Aramaic. Generally our calendars use the Aramaic, so Nisan. You can put it one or two. If it makes you say Nisan, it's good enough. The, the middle block, don't put any label over it. That one's going to stay blank. The third block is the month of Sivan, S-I-V-A-N. The third one, Sivan. Second blank, I don't care what it is because nothing happens in that month. <laughs> Except you're counting the Omer every day. Now, in your first block, which you labeled Nisan or Aviv, let me just ask, how many put Aviv? How many put Nisan? How many put both? Okay, fair enough. Starting from the left, go inside 10 days worth, so a third of the way through that first block, and put a mark, and write over it the 10th, or 10. Put three little hash marks after it for 11, 12, and 13, but you don't need to label those. Then put another nice mark, and put 14. Then another nice mark and put 15. Now you're about halfway through the month. You're only halfway through the month. Can't be too tight. <laughs> it's such a small month. It's such a small month. Put another mark and write on it 16. And put another nice mark and put on it 17. And now move over to the third month that you label Savan. And go about six days in and put a mark and put a number six. That's the sixth of Savan. If you look at your biblical calendar this year, the Hebrew calendar that everybody puts out, it will tell you that the Feast of Weeks is the sixth of Savan. So go ahead and mark there. The Hebcal says Feast of Weeks. <coughs> Hebcal is in Hebrew calendar. 
H-E-B-C-A-L. That's one of the websites where everybody goes to look for the Hebrew calendar. Okay. Now open your Bibles. To the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. Leviticus 23. Comes right after Leviticus 22. But you probably guessed that. We always like to remind you. Okay. Give me a thumbs up when you found it. Verse 1 says, And the Lord... That word Lord, look at how it's spelled. It's not always spelled that way with capital L and small caps O-R-D. When it's spelled that way, the Hebrew underneath is the tetragrammaton, the four Hebrew letters, yod heh vav heh. That's the Lord as in our Messiah, Yeshua. It says in the book of, in the New Testament anyway, if you shall confess with your mouth that Yeshua is the Lord. This is the Lord that they're talking about. Spoke to Moses saying, the word saying means it's a quote. Speak to the children of Israel, not speak to Jacob, not speak to Israel. Speak to the children of Israel, which is a much broader term. That includes everybody at Mount Sinai, the direct descendants of Jacob, as well as the mixed multitude that came out. Because they're expressing the faith of Israel, they're referred to as the children of Israel. Just as Galatians 3 says, if you have the faith of Abraham, you're one of the children of Abraham. Same thing. Say to them, the feast of the Lord. But the word feast is not right. The word for feast in Hebrew is chag, C-H-A-G. This is not chag, it's moedim. Moedim means the appointed times, the appointments. It's the appointments of the Lord. It's not appointments for us. It's appointments for him. These are times that the Lord is going to intervene in a physical mortal body to intervene in the affairs of mankind. Our Messiah Yeshua. Which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. The word holy is Kodesh and it means set apart unto God. The word convocation means a gathering together to rehearse. So these appointed times of the Lord will be seven. You can put that on your note paper at the bottom. Will be seven. The first is Passover, where they killed the lamb at three in the afternoon. Messiah died on Passover. What time? Three in the afternoon. He kept the appointment down to the day, down to the hour that it had been prophesied. He was buried just before the start of unleavened bread. He rose from the grave at the Feast of Firstfruits. The Holy Spirit came at the Feast of Weeks. So those first four appointed times of the Lord teach the first coming of the Lord, our Messiah Yeshua. The other three are in the fall and they teach the second coming. The Feast of Trumpets teaches the rapture and the resurrection. The Day of Atonement um, prophesies the return of Messiah in Revelation 19.11 for Armageddon. And then the last, the seventh, is the Feast of Tabernacles, which prophesies and foretells Messiah establishing his kingdom on earth when he sits and rules and reigns from the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 3 says, Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of solemn rest. A holy convocation. 
Why do we gather together on the seventh day on Saturday? To remember that God created the heavens and the earth in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. And it points forward in prophecy to the day of the Lord, which is the Messianic kingdom. That's what it prophesies. Verse 4, these are the feasts or the appointed times of the Lord. Holy convocations which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. Does God say, just pick a day you like? Just pick a time you like? No. It must be at these appointed times because otherwise they don't prophesy Messiah's first and second coming. So the 14th day of the first month begins at sundown. But Passover isn't until 3 p.m. What time did Messiah die? 3 p.m. What if we decide, yeah, let's, let's just wait till the weekend when it's more convenient. You break the picture. So look at verse 4. These are the appointed times of the Lord. Holy convocations which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the 14th day of the first month, you put a mark there, remember? Go look at your mark labeled the 14th. And down below it or above it or make an asterisk, however you want to do it and put, that's the crucifixion of Messiah. Now back up four days to the 10th. You see that 10th? In the year that Messiah died, the 10th day of the first month is what they call in the church today Palm Sunday. That's the day Messiah rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. I think you said the first day of the 10th month. The 10th day of the first month, whichever I said, that's what I meant. The tenth, Thank you, Mike. Tenth day of the first month. So that's the day Messiah rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. That's also the day that Israel was to take the lamb into the house. And for four days, from the 10th to the 14th, they were to examine the lamb to make sure that it was without spot. What did they do to Messiah from the 10th to the 14th? They questioned them. They tried to find a defect. He was questioned by the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Hellenists, the Romans, everybody trying to find a fault. And what did they find? He was without fault or defect. So that lamb that they brought into the house in Exodus 12 on the 10th day of the first month and kept for four days. What day did they kill it? On the 14th day. That's verse 5. On the 14th day of the first month, that's the little place you made the mark, at twilight, but it's not twilight like you and I think of it. The Hebrew is Bain Ha'aravim, which means between the evenings, that is halfway between noon and 6 p.m. For you math majors out there, what's halfway between noon and 6 p.m.? 3 p.m. Okay, so that's when Messiah dies. They take the lamb for all Israel and they tie it to the horns of the altar at 9 a.m. What time did they nail Messiah to the tree? 9 a.m. It stays tied to the altar for six hours. How long did Messiah hang on the tree? Six hours. At 3 p.m. they kill that lamb with the words, it is finished. Messiah dies at 3 p.m. with the words, it is finished. For 1,500 years before Messiah was born, Israel 
took the lamb into the house on the 10th day, killed it on the 14th with the words, it is finished. So they rehearse Messiah's death. Verse 6, on the 15th day of the same month. That's your next mark, right? In fact, 3 p.m. when Messiah dies is only three hours before the 15th begins. Remember I said they had to hurry to get him down off the cross to get him into the tomb because that high Sabbath was about to begin? So that 15th, you put the mark, is the first day of unleavened bread. That's verse 6. You can even put the verse number with it, if you like. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. That unleavened bread is a picture of Messiah. It has no leaven. Leaven's a picture of sin. It's broken. He was crucified. It's striped by the heat of the oven. The Romans beat him with a cat of nine tails. It's pierced. They pierced his side. They pierced his hands and his feet. And at Passover, you take half of that broken piece of matzah, wrap it in linen cloth, which is symbolic of burial cloth, and hide it away. Then after the meal, you bring it back out, symbolic of resurrection. So Messiah dies on the 14th. He's in the grave by the start of the 15th, which is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The next mark you put, the 16th, is the second day of Unleavened Bread. How many days of Unleavened Bread are there? Seven. That's the second. The next mark you put is the 17th. And the year that Messiah died, if the 10th was Sunday, what day is the 17th? It's Sunday. Otherwise known as the first day of the week in the Bible. You'll never find the word Sunday in the Bible. <coughs> Just the first day of the week. That's the day Messiah arose. On the Feast of First Fruits. What does Paul call him in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? The first fruits of the resurrection. And then come over here to the month of Sivan. You count 50 days from first fruits and put a hash mark after the sixth and just put Feast of Weeks. And that that's the end of the 50 days. Now let's go look at the scripture and see where that is. Verse 7, still in Nisan, it says, On the first day, that's the first day of unleavened bread, that's the 15th, you shall have a holy convocation. You rehearse Messiah's resting in the grave. You shall do no customary work on it. That makes it a Sabbath day. But you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. That's unleavened bread day seven. That's the 22nd. We don't need to mark that. Shall do no customary work on it. And everybody's going, what's this have to do with the Feast of Weeks? Yes, Mike. Um, is there any way for you to work into this? The 40th day and the, you know, the Catholics, the Santin day and all that. I, you know, when he was speaking to him, he ascended. There, I don't know that that 40th day is something I remember having seen. Is that, it's not? It's not anything I've ever seen on the charts. And while it might be interesting, it's not what we need to cover for today. But let's think about it anyway. So verse 9. This begins to talk about first fruits. 
And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. A sheaf. When Messiah rose in Matthew 27, did he arise alone? No, that would have been a stalk. He arose with others. That's the sheaf. And the teaching is when God accepts the sheaf, he accepts the whole harvest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. That's the only thing the Bible says about when the Feast of First Fruits is, is that it's the day after the Sabbath. At the time Messiah died, and for 40 years thereafter, the first fruit celebration that we just read about in verse 10 and 11 is on the first day of the week, which is the day after the Sabbath. That's going to change. And we'll talk about the change in a few minutes. But you have to know when first fruits is in order to know when the Feast of Weeks is. Okay? Mind to recap that? I think I lost my place in making the marks. Okay, on your marks. The Feast of First Fruits, the year Messiah died, was the 17th, which is the first day of the week. Okay, and then verse 15 of Leviticus 23 says, You shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, that's from the Feast of First Fruits, that from the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. So count seven Sabbaths. Just mark on your chart one, two, three, four, five, six. And seven comes out in Savan, where you put the mark for the Feast of Weeks at the end of the 50 days. The only way you know when the Feast of Weeks is, is you count 50 days from first fruits. That's why we looked at when first fruits is. First fruits is the 17th. First fruits, the year that Messiah died, was the 17th. But was that also the weekly Sabbath? No. The weekly Sabbath. The 17th is the day after the weekly Sabbath. Okay, okay. So we're counting okay. from the weekly Sabbath. The Sabbath. So, so let's go back to our picture and get this clear in our minds. In the year that Messiah died, it's going to change from year to year. They take the lamb on the 10th day. They kill it on the 14th. Messiah died on the 14th. That's clear from the scripture. From the 14th to the 15th is how many days? One. To the 16th is how many days? Two. To the 17th is how many days? Three. Messiah arises on the third day. Let us... Go to Matthew chapter 12. So in terms of the Pesach, it's their fixed days on the calendar. But Five of the seven appointed times are fixed dates. Right. But Two are not. So we know Passover is always on the 14th. First day of 11 bread is always on the 15th. Feast of Tabernacles is always on the first day, etc. They're on the same Fixed dates. But the other two fixed are fixed dates. dates. Correct. So five of the seven are on a fixed date. You can tell me the date right now. 
the 14th day of the first month, that's Passover. I don't care what day of the week is, the 14th day of the first month. But there's two that are not tied to a number of the day, but to the day of the week. And that's first fruits and Shavuot. They're both the day after the Sabbath. Look at Matthew chapter 12. That in the days of Messiah, they were always on Sunday, the first day of the week. Not true anymore. And that's what we want to talk about today is what changed and why. And it changed because of Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 and 40. Prior to Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection, first fruits was always on the first day of the week or Sunday. And the Feast of Weeks was always on the first day of the week or Sunday. But in chapter 12 of Matthew, verse 39, it says, But he answered and said to them, that's to the scribes and Pharisees, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 14th to the 15th, 15th to the 16th, 16th to the 17th, he arises. Okay, now let's come down to the problem. Go to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21, verse 20. Acts chapter 21, verse 20. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, that is to Paul, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed. And they are all zealous for the Torah. That phrase, how many myriads of Jews, means there are at least 30,000 Jews in the city of Jerusalem that believe that Yeshua is the Messiah and are saved by faith. I wasn't there, but the, the ancient sources tell us that Jerusalem was a city of about 60,000. So what portion of Jerusalem have become believers by Acts chapter 21? Half. Half. The scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the priestly uh, clan. They're freaking out. Because they're losing their power. They're losing their positions. They're losing their wealth as people get saved. They're not honoring the scribes the Pharisees, the Sadducees anymore. And let's go back to Matthew chapter 12 for a minute. Matthew chapter 12. We looked at verses 39 and 40, but let's back up to verse 34. Why do the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees hate Yeshua so much? 
What does he call him in verse 34? He calls him, you brood of vipers. He calls them the sons of the devil. You think this hurts their ego? Big time. And now half the city of Jerusalem is agreeing with Messiah that the scribes and Pharisees are not leading people to eternal life. They're leading people away from God. And look at the book of John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 44. He's talking to these same religious leaders who are feeling so threatened by him. John chapter 8, verse 44. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. So how do they feel when half the city of Jerusalem is now following Messiah, believing he is the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, and that he is teaching correctly? Do you see why they would feel threatened? And this goes on with the celebration of first fruits and the feast of weeks on the first day of the week because they take place at the temple. The Sadducee sect is made up of the priests who runs the temple, the priests. So the priests, they only accept, the Sadducees only accept the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. It's there that they get their authority from God, right? Mass ready to get their authority from God. So even though the Pharisees, from the time Messiah died until the temple was destroyed, kept pushing that we were figuring the dates of first fruits and Shavuot wrong, they're not getting any traction because the priests say, uh-uh, it says in Leviticus. And we're not changing it. So when the temple's destroyed, there comes a split in a, in a little while between the believing Jews and the non-believing Jews. You remember that? The believing Jews go to Pella in what is today Jordan. The non-believing Jews go to Yavne, Y-A-V-N-E-H, Yavne. And that's where they create what is called today Rabbinic Judaism. How do they feel about the believing Jews? They hate them with every fiber of their being. So while the scripture says, go to the book of Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Both groups have to grapple with what do we do now that there's no temple. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it says, And according to the law, according to the Torah, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. So there's no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. There's no more temple. For 40 years since Messiah was crucified, buried, and resurrected, they still have the temple, and now it's gone. The believers over in Pella say, it's not a problem. We have the blood of Messiah. 
The non-believing Jews in Yavne, they say, well, we can't go that way because we hate that man. So what do they do? The first thing they do is say, we've got to somehow keep the believing Jews out of our synagogues so they can't be teaching our people that Yeshua is the Messiah. So they say, Instead of the shedding of blood, yeah, we don't really need that. God said we do, but now we don't. We're going to replace it with scripted prayers. And everybody's going to pray the scripted prayers that we tell them to pray, when we tell them to pray, how we tell them to pray, and that's going to get them into heaven. So that's where rabbinic Judaism went. They don't have any blood, so they said we'll do it by prayer and, and good deeds. And part of the scripted prayers is an ancient prayer that existed during the days of Messiah called the Amidah, in which we have the Shemoni Esrei, or the 18 benedictions. That's what Shemoni Esrei means, the 18 benedictions. Many, many Messianic congregations today pray these same prayers. They pray the Amidah, they pray the Shemoni Esrei, without even thinking about that at Yavne, they added a 19th benediction called the Birkat Hamanim, which means the blessing of the others and his blessing tongue-in-cheek. It's a curse that when you pray it as a believer in Messiah, you pray condemnation on yourself. So they said the believing Jews can't pray that. So they won't come to our synagogues. They'll have to establish their own. And if you look in James, the book of James, turn to the book of James, that's exactly what the Messianics do is they establish their own synagogues. They're still synagogues. They still worship on Shabbat. James chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My brethren, you're not there. James chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly, that word is not assembly, it's synagogue. The church changed it from synagogue to assembly when they put it into the canon of the New Testament because they didn't want you to realize that the believers were still meeting on Shabbat in synagogues. But they were. So, the addition of the Shimoni Esrei, if they had added it as number 19, the believers could just pray the first 18 and just whistle Dixie while others read number 19. So they didn't put it at the end. It's number 12. They stuck it right in the middle. Right in the middle. And let me read it to you as it is today. It's been changed over the years. And for slanderers, by slanderers they mean those who believe in Yeshua as the Messiah. Let there be no hope. And let all wickedness, by that they being, believing Yeshua is the Messiah, perish as in a moment. 
And let all your enemies, by which they mean the Messianics, be speedily cut off. And the dominion of arrogance uproot and crush, cast down and humble speedily in our days. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who breaks the enemies and humbles the arrogant. If you just read that with no knowledge or background, that doesn't sound so bad. Now let me read it to you as it originally was. For the apostates, now you know for sure they're talking about the messianics, let there be no hope. And let the arrogant government be speedily uprooted in our days. Let the notzorim, notzorim means Nazarenes, the followers of Yeshua of Nazareth, and the menim, the others, the believers, be destroyed in a moment. And let them be blotted out of the book of life and not be inscribed together with the righteous. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who humblest the arrogant. So they have changed some of the words because, um, well, when it came to the Inquisition, they kept hearing about these words. So they made them less obvious, but the meaning is still the same. So that's step number one. Now the believing Jews cannot come into their synagogues and teach people about Yeshua. That's not enough. Because people don't just meet in the synagogues, do they? They might meet in the marketplace. They might meet other places. And I might come up to one and start telling them about Yeshua the Messiah. So, take your little chart. After the destruction of the temple... And the non-believers going to Yavne, they did something else at Yavne. They reinterpreted the scripture. Let me go back and read you the scripture from Leviticus chapter 23. At this point, there's no temple. So the priesthood's power is destroyed. The Sadducees, they just fade out of existence. But Leviticus 23.11 says, He shall wave the sheep before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf, on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And he said, now wait a minute. There's another way you could interpret that. Instead of it being the day after the weekly Sabbath, let's move it to the 16th of that first month, which is the second day of unleavened bread. And we'll say that Yes, Yeshua died on Passover. We can't get around that. Everybody knows that. Everybody across the Roman Empire knows that. But that first day of unleavened bread, the 15th, you can't do any work on that. So, well, that's a Sabbath too. So we'll put the Feast of first fruits on the 16th every year. God knew Passover was the 14th. He knew unleavened bread began the 15th, but he couldn't remember the day after the 15th. That's why he said the day after the Sabbath. So they then fixed the date of first fruits to the 16th day of the first month. If you look at your biblical, your Hebrew calendar for this year, you're going to find first fruits on the 16th. Look on it last year, it's on the 16th. Ten years ago on the 16th, it's fixed now to a date on the calendar, no longer to a day of the week. And if you start counting the Omer, 
from the 16th, the fixed day, you come out to that Savon 6 every year. So this year, Savon 6 was Thursday. So while the Bible says the day after the Sabbath, I want everybody to think right now about Thursday. Can you see it in your mind? Picture it hard. If that's the day after the seventh Sabbath, what is the fifth of Savan? No, it's not. It's nothing. <laughs> it's not a Sabbath day of any kind. So again, Leviticus 23 says, verse 16, count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. So what the rabbis did there when they created rabbinic Judaism was to make a fixed date on the calendar of the 16th of the first month for first fruits and the sixth day of Savan for the Feast of Weeks. And I have been told just in the last week, as I have been many times through the years, Wayne, the Jews say it's the 16th and the 6th, and you have no right to question it. You've heard it said, but I tell you it's written. Exactly. You know what my response is when somebody tells me that? I say, if you go back to the early 2000s, the Jewish people in New York took out a full page ad in the New York Times. You know what that costs? A full page. And in letters about this big, said, why don't the Jews believe in Jesus? They said, because our ancestors 2,000 years ago rejected him, so we don't need even to ask the question. So their answer is, 2,000 years ago, the Jewish leadership said, crucify him, crucify him, so we don't have any right to question their decision. We just must accept it. My response to that is, my ancestors 2,000 years ago are not going to defend me come judgment day and say, yeah, we told him wrong, okay? We have the scriptures before us. Turn back to Leviticus 23. What does it say? First fruits is the day after the Sabbath. If God meant the 16th of the first month, he knew how to say that. And for the Feast of Weeks, verse 15, and you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be counted. Fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. You know what they had to do at Yavne? Was to say, well, ignore the fact that it says Sabbath. And just pretend it said week. Count seven weeks until the day after the seventh week. What is the word in Hebrew for weeks? Shavuot. What's the word for the Sabbath? Shabbat. Don't come from the same root. Don't have the same meaning. What does the, the noun Sabbath come from? It comes from the verb Sabbath, which means rest. Turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. 
I haven't told you why they made this change yet, but I'm getting there. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Think of the position I would be in if, yes, I had Jewish ancestors 2,000 years ago. They may have been the ones crying crucify and they may not. I wasn't there. But the fact that the Jewish leadership decided 2,000 years ago that Yeshua wasn't the Messiah, what if I took the position, well, then I don't need to consider it. Where would I be? Credit to the crispy critter place, right? Ain't going there. Genesis 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. That word rested is the word Shabbat. Sabbath. He Shabbated. He Sabbathed. He rested. Verse 3, Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he Shabbated. He rested from all his work which God had created and made. So let's go back to the reason. Go back to Matthew 12. Matthew 12. I know this argument because I have engaged over the past 30 years with the anti-missionaries many times. Many times. Until they got tired of having discussions with me because I was no fun. (laughs) But in Matthew chapter 12, Verses 39 and 40. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the argument is this. Messiah was crucified at at Passover. Everybody knows it. He was raised from the tomb on first fruits. Everybody knows it. But now hold up your fingers. 14 to 15, 15 to 16. That's now first fruits. How many days and nights? Are there three? No. Messiah's prophecy failed. What do you know about a prophet of God? Every word comes to pass. And if a prophecy fails, the prophet is not from God. He's from the evil one. So this Yeshua that you guys are believing in is a false prophet. That's still the argument used by the anti-missionaries today. Since he wasn't in the tomb three days and three nights, it doesn't matter if he lied or if he was just mistaken. He can't be the Messiah. So do you see how they're trying to keep people from seeing that Yeshua is the Messiah? Because look at what really happens. Hold up four fingers on one hand. He died at Passover, was buried in leavened bread. He arose at first fruits, and the Holy Spirit came at Shavuot. Can you see how people can begin to say, wait a minute, he must be the Messiah. He's fulfilling the appointed times. But now after saying, look, look, he was wrong about his death, burial, and resurrection. You guys talk about these miraculous things that happen on first fruits. No, no, no. That happened on a Sunday. Not on Savon 6. So that must not have been from God. Those signs must have been from the evil one. So, effectively, what these uh, people at Yahweh were doing, 
they were fulfilling the prophecy in Daniel of the basically the Antichrist changing the times and seasons, the appointed time. Right, without even realizing it. Yeah, so yeah, I've always blamed the Catholic Church, but it was actually these guys. And then the Catholic Church just did the same thing three centuries later. Yeah. And you cannot change God's word. You cannot change God's word. So that's why when you look at your Hebrew calendar next year, if we're still here, it's going to tell you that the Feast of Weeks is on Savan 6. It'll say that eight years from now, 20 years from now, because at Yavne they fixed the date. And they did it to try and show the world that Yeshua is not the Messiah. Is there a chance that the council in Jerusalem today could correct it? It's possible. But since the council in Jerusalem today are not believers, it's not likely. But it is possible. I don't know about that. I do know Pinchas Lapid, who's one of the famous Jewish sages of around the 18th century, said you will not find a more upright and righteous Jew than Yeshua of Nazareth. So there's been a lot of re-examination. So are there no um, secular uh, texts that show you know, that time frame? You know, of course. Like Roman records or any kind of records that show that Yeshua that all the, you know, happened during that week? I mean, yes, there's all kinds of historical just, evidence. They just disregard that? They just disregard it and say you're not allowed to consider it. Oh. And you have the Hebrew Bible up here. It's called it. It should have it should have Leviticus saying exactly what our English says. The dates. Let's turn to Leviticus chapter twenty-three. It's gonna read just like the English reads. So they didn't change the text. They merely reinterpreted it. Remember, if you look at the Talmud, it says that God gave us the Torah, and now it's no business of his what we do with it. Leviticus chapter 23. Let's see. Leviticus 23. Let me go to the right, right place. The place I was reading was actually about the festivals as well, but it's not the very place I want to see. Feast of Weeks, verse 15. And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, Hashabbat, Miyom, from the day that you bring the sheaf of the wave offering, Sheva, Shabbatot, seven Sabbaths. In the English here, they put seven weeks, but the Hebrew says seven Sabbaths. Yeah. Mm -hmm. From the day after the Sabbath. Yes? Yesterday, the day before, some, uh, my version said seven complete Sabbaths, which made me think it was even more specific about being the week. Yeah. But is that complete not there? Is that just no, the word complete is not there. Okay. Win? Yes, Sam. Question: We call it the Feast of Weeks. Is it better termed the Feast of Sabbath? No, 
It's fine. The term in the Bible is Shavuot, which is weeks, the Feast of Weeks. Now, what do you count from Passover to the Feast of Weeks? Seven Sabbaths. Seven Sabbaths. Go to Acts chapter 20, just as an aside. Acts chapter 20. Yep. Verse 7 in our English Bible is translated in such a way as to intentionally mislead us, it appears. I wasn't there. Verse 7 says, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. As you read that, that means they came together on Sunday to break bread, right? Of those five key words, first day of the week, how many of those are in the Greek underneath the English? Two, of the. There is no first, there is no day, and there is no week. The Greek says mia ton sabaton, which says on one of the Sabbaths. Which causes you to go, what Sabbaths? Look at verse 6. We sail from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. What do you count between unleavened bread and Shavuot? Seven Sabbaths. Verse 6, 7 says, now on one of the Sabbaths, when they came together to break bread, says nothing about Sunday. Nothing at all. And what does it say again in Hebrew? Mia, it's in Greek. Mia, M-I-A, ton, T-O-N, sabaton, S-A-B-B-A-T-O-N, on one of the Sabbaths. The word Sabbath there is plural, on one of the Sabbaths. On one of what Sabbaths? On one of the seven Sabbaths between Passover and the Feast of Weeks. Oh, yes, ma'am. Uh huh. Tamim means without spot or blemish. Um, so where? Let me go back to Leviticus 23. It wasn't the verse I was reading, but let's see. Leviticus 23. Seven days with similar Uh-huh. Leviticus 23, verse which? 15. 15. 23, verse 15. Um, it's tamimot, which means full, mm-hmm. just mean the beginning of the first day. Yeah. Okay. So let's go back and look at what happened at Shavuot historically. There are five names for the Feast of Weeks that I want you to put in your notes. In Exodus 23, 16. So let's turn over there. Exodus 
and the Feast of Harvest. That's a term for Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Harvest. What are they harvesting at Shavuot? They're harvesting barley and it's the beginning of the wheat harvest. The very first fruits of the wheat harvest. In Exodus 34.22 it's called the Feast of Weeks, which is why we call it the Feast of Weeks. Or Shavuot. Or Pentecost. Or call it the Feast of Harvest. Call it the Many things. Exodus 34, verse 22. You shall observe the feast of weeks, of the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. So the feast of weeks and the first fruits of the wheat harvest are the same day. And then the feast of ingathering is the, at the year's end. In God's view, the seven appointed times break down to three feasts. Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits are all during one pilgrim festival. The Feast of Weeks is another. And the Feast of Tabernacles includes Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Trumpets. Because these are the three times a year that all the Jewish males had to go up to Jerusalem. Now it's important, when Messiah was crucified, all Israel was there to see it. When the Holy Spirit came, it says there were Jews from all nations of the world in Jerusalem because they were there to see it. And when Messiah returns, where will all Israel be? In Jerusalem to see it. It's also called, in the same verse, the first fruits of the wheat harvest. So when you hear the phrase Yom HaBikarim, which means the day of the harvest, there are two. First fruits is called Yom HaBikarim. That's the first fruits of the barley harvest. And the Feast of Weeks is called Yom HaBikarim. It's the first fruits of the wheat harvest. It's also called Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 verse 1. And it's also called the first trumpet or the first trump. The first trump sounded at Mount Sinai. So let's go to Exodus chapter 19. And let's hear the first trumpet blow in our minds. Exodus 19. The first few verses of Exodus 19 <coughs> tell us that the events that are about to unfold take place 47 days after the Exodus. 47 days. So three days before Shavuot. Verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in a thick cloud, 
that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and let them be ready for the third day. If you take 47 and add 3, it brings you to the 50th day, which is Shavuot. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And when he came down, what was it like? Verse 16. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings. That word thunderings in Hebrew is kolot, and it means voices. The people at the base of Mount Sinai for, were from what nations? All nations. That's why God speaks in all the nations' languages. And there were lightnings, which means the mountains on fire. And a thick cloud in the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet, here's the first trump, was very loud. So that all the people who were in the camp trembled. That first trump indicates the theme of Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, and that is betrothal. Here at Shavuot in the wilderness, God betrothed a bride. And the Torah is the ketubah. Ketubah means the marriage contract. The ketubah says what the obligations are of the bride and the obligations of the bridegroom. And that's what the Torah is, is our ketubah, indicating the terms of our betrothal to God. And then, let's go up to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And this is the fulfillment of the Feast of Shavuot in the New Testament. Verse 1 says, when the day of Pentecost, that's Shavuot, that's today, had fully come. That means this is the ultimate and final fulfillment of the Feast of Weeks. This is what they have been looking forward to for 1,500 years and kept rehearsing for 1,500 years. It says they were all with one accord in one place. That doesn't mean they drove Hondas. It just means they're all of one heart, of one mind. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. The word wind in Hebrew is ruach. Same word as the Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit coming. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. Remember, they've just been reading about Exodus 19, how the mountain was on fire. How it shook. And here comes a mighty rushing wind that shakes the place. And here is fire coming down upon them. What do you think they were thinking of as this happens? Mount Sinai. This is what happened at Mount Sinai. Verse 3. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. And one sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In Exodus 19, God spoke and everybody heard it in their own language. What happens here at Pentecost? They speak and everyone hears it in their own language. Verse 5, and they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. 
Why were they there from every nation under heaven? It's Shavuot. It's a pilgrim festival. They're required to be there. The devout came. Those that were not devout, they didn't care. They didn't bother. But here are the devout. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. That's what happened at Mount Sinai. So do you get the idea they're beginning to see, hey, this is from God? Yes. They were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? That's like people in Boston saying, hey, ain't them all Appalachian hicks? <laughs> the Galileans were the common people. In Hebrew, that's called the Am Ha'aretz, the people of the land. They weren't educated. They didn't have yeshivas to go study in. So how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? And then they list a bunch of them. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia. By that they mean Turkey. Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Oh my goodness, what's a proselyte? A Gentile who converts to Judaism. So they were not all born Jews. At Mount Sinai, were they all born Jews? No, there was a mixed multitude. Here's the mixed multitude. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Verse 13, others mocking said, they're full of new wine. How would you say that in modern English? They're drunk. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, which means shut up and listen to me. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, meaning they haven't had time to get drunk. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Why does Peter immediately start turning to the Old Testament? The show was not abolished because that's the scriptures they had. And every prophecy that comes from God will come to pass. Verse 17 says, It shall come to pass in the latter days, says God. Thou pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vaporous smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Remember those four blood moons we had that fell on Jewish feast days and when the rapture didn't come that fall, people said, oh, look, didn't have nothing to mean about nothing. This doesn't say they come on the awesome day of the Lord. It says they come when? Before. It's a warning that this is coming to get ready, to repent, to prepare. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What does that word whoever mean? Anybody. Me. That's right. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Yeshua of Nazareth. Notice, even the proselytes are referred to here as men of Israel. Yeshua of Nazareth, the man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. 
Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. These same people were here when Messiah was crucified. They may have been in the crowd crying, crucify him, crucify him. And the Jews who were calling crucify him, crucify him said, may his blood be upon us and our children, right? So he says, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. They know that happened because they were in Jerusalem to see it. But now Peter's really focusing on it. For David says concerning him, was that David Horowitz? No, that's King David who was a prophet. He was a prophet. For David says concerning him, concerning Yeshua, I saw the Lord always before my face. What does David call Messiah? The Lord. See how it's spelled? That's the tetragrammaton. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover my flesh also will rest in hope. You will not leave my soul in Hades, at Sheol, the waiting place of the dead. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. He says, David is a prophet, prophesied Messiah would be crucified, buried, and resurrected. You've made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Do the assembled masses there understand that this is about Messiah? Not yet. So Peter's going to explain it in smaller words. Men and brethren, let me speak to you of the patriarch David. That he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. How many in here have been to the tomb of David? He's still in there. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Messiah to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah, that his soul was not left in Sheol. Nor did his flesh see corruption. This Yeshua God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. I want you to bet he's making eye contact around the room. We are all witnesses. And they're having to go, yeah, you're right, I was there. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, that's Psalm 1101. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, so I'm going to make your enemies your footstool. Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. He says, God promised the Holy Spirit to come. What did you just see? What did you just experience? For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, send to my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. For some reason, the publishers of my Bible put Psalm 68, 18, but it's Psalm 110, verse 1. Trust me. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know. He's talking about the Jews and the proselytes as the house of Israel. Know assuredly that God has made this Yeshua whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now when he heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were there. 
They cried, crucify him. And now they understand what they have done. Then Peter said to them, what's the first word? Repent. Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Yeshua the Messiah for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So back in Exodus chapter 19, the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai with fire and with all the languages of the known world on the 50th day. In Acts chapter 2, here comes the Holy Spirit on Shavuot, the 50th day. In the wilderness, in Exodus chapters 19 and 20, the commandments of God were written on tablets of stone. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon us, the commandments of God were written on our hearts. In the wilderness, the commandments were written on the tablets of stone by the finger of God. In Acts chapter 2, they were written upon our hearts by the Spirit of God. Back in the wilderness, about 3,000 were slain. Go to Exodus 32. Exodus 32. I want you to notice the words. Exodus chapter 32. How many people were slain? They make the golden calf. Moses throws down the tablets. Those who took part in the idolatry die. How many? About 3,000. Now let's go up to... Acts chapter 2, verse 38. So there on Mount Sinai, about 3,000 were lost in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 to 41. Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Yeshua the Messiah for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, how many? About 3,000 souls were added to them. Notice they both say about 3,000. Isn't that just amazing? In the wilderness, it happened at Mount Sinai. In Acts chapter 2, it happens at Mount Zion. At this point, let's read the Megillah. How many of you are old enough to remember the old cartoon called Megillah Gorilla? Yeah, all those authors were all Jewish. The word Megillah means the whole book. So the Megillah for the Feast of Weeks is the book of Ruth. So let's turn to the book of Ruth. So was Peter on the temple mount when he was? Yeah. Okay. So that was kind of outside, um, right, or in the courts? Or... Mm-hmm. 
Yeshua Right. If you've been up on the Temple Mountain, I know you have. There's lots of room up there yeah. to gather people together to talk. The book of Ruth is the book that we learn to read in Hebrew in the first Hebrew primer. It comes right after Judges. If you want a fun time, look at all the names in the book of Ruth. They're all so informative, I think. Book of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, <coughs> he and his wife and his two sons. The name Bethlehem, Beit Lechem in Hebrew, means the house of bread. This was a great grain growing area and they made lots of bread to sustain the people in Israel. And there's a famine, there's not wheat. So they go to the land of Moab, and the Torah sages, the ancients, tell us that um, this man we're reading about was very rich. And he got tired of all his family and neighbors asking to borrow wheat from him, and that's why he went to Moab, was to get away from what he would call the moochers. I wasn't there, don't know, but okay, verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech which means, my God is king. name of his wife was Naomi, which means pleasantness. And the names of his two sons were Machlon and Chilion, which means sickly and wasting away. <laughs> Elimelech and his two sons are a picture of the Jewish people as they're being punished by God and taken out into captivity. They were Ephratites of Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah. Orpah means stiff-necked. name of the other was Ruth. Ruth means friend. And these two daughters-in-law you find, those names will characterize how they react toward the children of Israel. They dwelt there about ten years. Then both Machlon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that they might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. In other words, once more the wheat fields are producing, there's plenty of food to eat. Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. She says, Don't come with me to Israel. Go back to Moab, to your mother's house, where you came from. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me, meaning my sons. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. They said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. In other words, we, although we're Gentiles, are going to go be grafted into Israel. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? 
It's a picture of the Jewish people saying, you're Gentiles, stay away. Are there still <coughs> sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Of course, the answer that's no. Turn back, my daughters, go, for I'm too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters. No, my daughters. For it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Of course, the sages say that Elimelech and Machlon and Chilion died because of the selfishness and hardness of their hearts. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Orpah kisses her goodbye, and Ruth says, ain't leaving. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law, meaning go back and worship those pagan gods of Moab. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you, or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. So which of the two daughters-in-law pictures the Gentile believers being grafted into Israel and saying, I don't care if you want me or not, I'm here. That's Ruth. Turn to page. Lord, do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you from me parts you and me, that is a vow in the name of God. So at this point, Ruth can't push anymore to be part. She's gone as far as she can, and Naomi can't send her away and cause her to break her oath made on the name of God. So verse 18, when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her, meaning stopped trying to persuade her, not that she didn't speak to her anymore. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem, and it happened when they had come to Bethlehem, that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? But she said to them, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasantness. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full. I went out with a husband and two children. And the Lord has brought me home again empty. <clears throat> Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So when is that? That's first fruits. Chapter 2. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech. In other words, he's a relative, a close relative. His name was Boaz. Boaz is a nickname. His full name is Ibzan, I-B-Z-A-N. You find him listed in the book of Judges as one of the judges of Israel. He is the man in charge of the nation. So Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. Is she saying, let me go steal? No. In the Torah, God says, leave the corners of the field in the gleanings. So she's only doing what God says she has a right to do. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Then she left and went, and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. 
So what the reapers leave on the grain vines, they're not allowed by God to go back and get it. That's for the strangers and the poor and the homeless. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Don't you love that? It just happened. Verse 4, Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. <coughs> no, she's a hard worker. She's been out here in the heat and the sun all day working. Then Boaz said to Ruth, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Why in the world would Boaz allow Ruth to do this and make this comment to her? Remember, Naomi is his close relative. And Ruth is out here gleaning not just for herself, but for Naomi. In picture, she's out here gathering food for the one who represents the Jewish people. In type and picture, keeping the gospel message alive till the children of Israel are ready to receive it. But I digress. Verse 9. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you, meaning you're safe in my field? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Does he have to allow this? No, he does not. He's showing favor because she's there to bless Naomi. Yes, Mike? Um, most of the time we see in the Bible that the women draw water. Because all of his threshers are men. But the women who are there gleaning don't have to serve to do that? that Right. Right. They don't serve the man who owns the field. His servants, though, are all men at this time. But you're right. Normally women draw the water. Mm -hmm. Verse 10. So she fell on her face. That doesn't mean she's clumsy. It means she's showing respect. Bowed down to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? She is a foreigner. She's born in Moab. But does she worship the pagan gods of Moab? She does not. She is what we would call a gear, not a goy. She's a non-Jew, but she worships the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. He tells us here it's specifically because he knows she is taking care of Naomi. Now you've left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and have come to people whom you did not know before. The Lord repair, repay your work <clears throat> and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. Then she said, let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me. And has spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. In other words, you're treating me like I'm your maidservant, even though I'm not. You have no obligation to me, but you're treating me like you would one of your own. 
Verse 14, Now Boaz said to her at mealtime, Come here and eat of the bread, and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. Does he have to allow that? Absolutely not. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed parched grain to her, and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. He knew she would. Why does she keep some back? It's for Naomi. Mm -hmm. And when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Have you figured out yet who Boaz represents in this story? Represents Messiah. Yeah. Blessing the Gentiles so that through them he can bring the blessing back to the Jews. Also let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. He says what you've already picked from the grains, just let some of it fall on the ground. Leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening and beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. That's a lot. Then she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she gleaned. So she brought out and gave her what she kept back after she had been satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today? And where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. How does she know somebody took notice of Ruth? There's no way she could have had that much and the bread and everything. Nah, somebody took notice. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. Because these are his relatives. Naomi said to her, This man is a relative of ours, one of our close relatives. Make notice of that. Not the closest, but one of our close relatives. In order to be a kinsman redeemer, you must be a close relative. The closest one who has the ability and the willingness to pay the debt that you owe. Verse 21. Ruth the Moabitess said, he also said to me, You shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women and that people do not meet you in any other field. Or she says, stick with him. He's treating you well. Somebody asked a question, Wayne, does the events with Peter and the mixed multitude meaning Acts chapter 2 happen the same year that our Messiah was crucified? That's, yes, true. And somebody asked, what did you say Naomi meant? And that's pleasantness. Yeah. Correct. Okay, so back to chapter 2, verse 23. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest. What's the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest? That's the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. Which teaches about the coming of the kingdom, right? And the taking of the bridegroom and the bride, yeah. And she dwelt with her mother-in-law. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young women were with you, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. <laughs> 
Let his heart be merry. Yeah, okay. Verse 4. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies. And you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down. He will tell you what to do. When she goes in and uncovers his feet and lies down at his feet, that's a marriage proposal. You've got to understand the customs at the time. That means she wants to be his wife. And says, then he will tell you what you should do, meaning he'll either tell you yes or no. And she said to her, all that you say to me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was cheerful. What does it mean his heart was cheerful? <coughs> well, at least a little tipsy. <laughs> Probably a lot tipsy. Because whenever the harvest has come in, people really celebrate them. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself, and there a woman was lying at his feet. Didn't happen every day, obviously. And he said, who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Do you understand the phrase, under your wing? Have you seen a Jewish wedding? At the end, when I pronounce them husband and wife, the new husband stretches out the wing of his tallit and puts it across the bride's shoulder. Yep, yep. that's what it's talking about. Take your maidservant under your wing means, would you please marry me? For you are a close relative. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter. For you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, and that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. He is much, much older than she. But again, it pictures that Messiah has been calling the children of Israel to repent for long before Acts chapter 2, right? And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request, meaning I will marry you, and I will buy back your lands. I'll pay your debts. For all the people in my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now, it is true that I am a close relative. However, there's a relative closer than I. Everybody go, oh, no. It has to be the closest relative with the ability and the willingness to redeem the person. He says there's somebody closer than I, which means the one who's closer than I has the first right, not me. Stay this night and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, and that close relative means a kinsman redeemer, a redeemer as in Messiah is our redeemer. Good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. That's an oath on the name of the Lord. He says, lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning. No, hanky-panky. She lays at his feet until morning. And she arose before one could recognize another. Remember, there were no street lights. It's dark. Then he said, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Also he said, bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. She gleaned how much? An ephah. 
He gives her six ephahs. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Is that you, my daughter? Then, meaning, what's the news? What did he say? What happened? Are you married? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, These six ephahs of barley he gave me. Can you say bride price? <laughs> for he said to me, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Take blessings back to the one who represents the children of Israel. Then she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Chapter 4. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. The gates where all the judges would meet to judge the people, and Boaz is the judge of Israel. She goes up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken, that is the one who was closer than he, came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, sit down here. It's not friend. It's so-and-so. Because he will not do his duty to be the kinsman redeemer, he's not even worthy to be named. So that's what it is. So-and-so. Sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders. What do you call ten men? A minion. Of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. Boaz and Elimelech are brothers. So is the one who's closer He's just between them in age. Mm, so he's closer. Verse 4, And I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you'll redeem it, redeem it. But if you'll not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it. And I'm next after you. So he tells the guy, if you want to redeem it, it's your right, redeem it. But if not, I'm next. And he, that is so-and-so, said, I will redeem it. Can you see Boaz's heart fall? He's going to do it. <coughs> then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. Oh, that's different. So-and-so was willing to buy back the land. But to marry the lady and the first child she has is not considered so-and-so's, but her dead husband's. So he's saying, that's going to dilute my inheritance. That's going to go to my kids. They're not willing to do that. Verse 6, and the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. That's what he means. It's when I have a child with her, that's considered my brother's child. Yeah, and whatever he gets to inherit, a double portion, diminishes what I've got for my kids. So he says, you redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. The point in the story, the, it's a real true story, but it's also an analogy. In the analogy, it means you and I have relatives closer than Messiah, right? Blood relatives that are closer. But do they have the ability 
and the willingness to redeem you? No, they can't. So then it falls to who does, and that's Messiah. So let's go back to verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything. One man took off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was a confirmation in Israel. People go, what? <laughs> to show ownership of land, you walked it. You got the dirt of the land on your shoes. This is mine. So when you transfer the land, you took that sandal, which has the dirt from the ground that you walked on, you give it to the other guy and says, now this is your dirt. So that's the way they indicated the exchange of properties. Verse 8. Therefore the close relatives said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Machlon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Machlon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. Who were Rachel and Leah, the wives of? Jacob. And may you prosper in Ephrata, that's where Bethlehem is, and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Peretz, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Well, let's not talk about that story. Because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a close relative, a kinsman redeemer, one to redeem you. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor woman gave him a name saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Let me add a note from the Jewish sages of old. I wasn't there. But they say that Orpah also has a child who has a child. And ultimately her grandson is Goliath. Goliath. So that David is the descendant of Ruth who is the friend to the Jews. And Orpah's descendant was Goliath, the enemy of the Jews. Verse 18. Now this is the genealogy of Paris. Paris begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. And Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nachshon. And Nachshon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz. That's the Boaz of this story. And Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David. And that ends the book of Ruth. What do we say when we finish the book? We say Chazak, Chazak. 
Venish Chazek, be strong, be strong, and may we be strengthened. For how we strengthen as believers, but by studying the Word of God. And it's now time for me to close so we can have our ice cream.